Hello, and welcome to the Marysville Journal Tribune podcast. My name is Michael Williamson, and I'm here today with Mac Cordell, reporter, Kayleen Petrovia, reporter, Ali Lanassa, reporter. And Chad Williamson, Managing Editor. All right. So today we're going to talk about the story that's really the biggest story that's happened in Marysville in a while, something that actually made national headlines. Uh, And that is the incident that happened at the Hampton Inn uh, Hotel there in Marysville over the weekend. Multiple people called 911 reporting people unresponsive in the pool area. uh, And it was eventually found out that there was a carbon monoxide leak that ended up putting several people uh, in the hospital. Um, that is kind of the, the the status between Saturday and now. So where do you guys want to begin? Oh, we'll probably have Mac give some color on because he interviewed the most people yesterday and everything. I was I went out there also, so I'll add some things. But, you know, probably one of the bigger national news things I've seen since I've been here, um, you didn't have national news necessarily descend on the area. Like, I remember when... We had a resident named Nathan Gale that shot up the Alrosa Villa. I, so I don't mean to laugh, but it was a. I remember that morning right. distinctly because we knew this terrible thing happened down in Columbus, and then somebody said, "Hey, they're saying that guy's from Marysville," and, and everybody just. But then there were like national satellite trucks in Marysville that time. This is a little different, but I'll say this: it was everywhere. This story of these. What would we say the final count was? 15 people I think 15 um, taken either walking in or being taken by squad to area hospitals after a CO2 CO leak sorry right. carbon monoxide leak at the Hampton Inn in Marysville um, Mac if you want to kind of fill in some details I guess Saturday evening uh, just before 530 um, the Union County Sheriff's Office received a 911 call from an individual in the pool area uh, and they said, you know, there's there was a child that was unresponsive, and they didn't really know kind of what was going on, why the child was unresponsive, just that the child was unresponsive. Uh, when the I talked with Jay Riley and the fire chief in Marysville, and and I said, you know, hey, did you guys know going in? Did you have any expectation? He said, no, we really. He said, we anytime we go to a scene you never know what you're going to what you're going to stumble into even if even if the person on scene gives you an idea sometimes they don't have you know maybe as as good an idea as they think they do so you always kind of go in with an open mind as to what's going on um but he said as soon as they walked into the pool area uh, they have co monitors in their kind of their their bags and they all started to go off he said so at that point we pretty quickly knew what we were dealing with um while they were trying to deal with they found a two-year-old child unresponsive uh, and as they were trying to help her they said there were some other individuals that kind of came forward that were either having problems or other family members having problems uh, and they kind of got everybody out of the pool area and i think you said there were four individuals in the pool area where did they take those people i i was going to ask you this yesterday did they take them outside right is that what they did? Yeah, they took. So them these outside. people, got, they're overcome with fumes, straight out of the water, out into. Well, let me tell you, it was cold. Yeah, and boy, oh boy, like well, that's, I think that was. They also they said they didn't know what else may be in the area. No, they, I get they just, it. I just know. didn't know. You know, I didn't know if there's anything around there adjacent. I mean, outside makes the most sense, but it was cold and it was snowy, <laughs> and uh, they were straight out of the pool, right? In pool attire, right? Yeah, you know, so. So 
um, then they realized, well, we need to kind of, they began testing other areas of the hotel, uh, found that there were high levels, really high levels. What was highest in the pool area, they determined that there were high levels and, and potentially fatal levels throughout the, the hotel. So they went. And that was, that was something that was originally not reported like that. Right. I know to myself being out there and other news agencies, they thought it was contained to the pool area, which maybe makes a little more sense. Um, I mean, I don't want to say it's less dangerous, but if it was the whole hotel versus a small area, it's a lot bigger deal. So that's kind of a lot of times when you have breaking kind of frantic situations like this, you have some misinformation get out initially. And that was one aspect I know that, that got out kind of erroneously. Yeah. And we can talk a little bit about the misinformation because that, that has been a, a source of kind of, I think maybe some frustration between the EMA as well as the fire chief, but uh, they started to, they decided they needed to evacuate the entire hotel. Um, unfortunately it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, two in the morning where, you know, everybody was asleep, but they started, they started knocking on doors and they had a master key. So they, they would knock, they said they would knock. If nobody responded, they'd knock again, kind of announce their presence. And if nobody responded, they just swiped the key in and in they'd go. And, uh, Chief Riley said that, you know, they got a lot of shocked people when they, when they walked <laughs> in. Uh, but everybody seemed, you know, pretty appreciative of, of the warning and, and them showing up. Well, so they're naked getting out of the shower when two firemen come busting in. Right. <laughs> screaming, get out of here. You know, that's a... I, think about that. You've, you've stayed in hotels. Oh, yeah. I've stayed in hotels. I've... You know, you've had housekeeping or whatever knock on the door and you tell them to go away. Right. And in this situation or whatever, you... They're not going away. They're not going away. They're, they're coming, coming in. in. Yeah. And, uh, but again, everybody seemed... Everybody seemed okay, you know. And they better said... Better than the alternative. Better than... Right. And... Uh, so he said there were multiple people. They they detected uh, potentially fatal levels of carbon monoxide on all three levels of the hotel. They found victims uh, throughout the hotel. Kind of, he said, in various states of uh, distress or kind of different uh, displaying different levels of symptoms or different degrees of symptoms, I guess. Um, so, but they were able to get the entire hotel evacuated. Uh, everybody, everybody out. Those that were kind of suffering from from CO poisoning in the rest of the hotel, they were able to get them out as well. Um, and then that's kind of where the coordination efforts had to start. You know, when they had to start transporting people. I mean, they transported what nine? I think nine people. And and again, there's Clearly, some. Marysville does not have nine emergency squads. No, no. So did everybody? Almost every fire department in the county was had you know EMS there. Uh, they got people taken to Memorial Hospital and to Grady, and then I think Memorial quickly identified that they maybe didn't have the the resources to treat a this many people and b with kind of this particular yeah. issue their covid numbers are down a little but i think they're still running pretty full over there so and somebody asked me how can they not treat i had this just personally somebody asked me why why would they be able to treat you know nine people coming in that's ridiculous i was like well because it was a regular saturday night they've got other people coming in and honestly nine people with one it wasn't like they came in an hour apart they right. dumped nine people in all at once 
you probably have one doctor, maybe one doctor on a weekend night shift mm-hmm. working, you know, and a handful of nurses. So, you know, they need doctors, they need nurses, or they need to find a new facility. When I think the other issue, and, and I don't know for certain, but um, in addition to the staffing, they needed a very specific treatment uh, for seal poisoning. The treatment is is time in a hyperbaric chamber, and I don't know if Marysville, ha- yeah, I don't know if Marysville has one, uh, but my guess is they don't have nine of them. Yeah. Um, I didn't know that. I thought yeah. I thought just oxygen or something like that. Max story and maybe some information you got from Memorial Hospital as well. Chad said. It kind of depends on the level of exposure they've experienced. So some patients can be treated with high-flow oxygen therapy is what they called it, which I assume is just giving them extra levels of oxygen. But then those that had much higher degrees of illness would need the chamber. Right. And I think they they transported, I think seven were treated with the chamber, uh, whether it was at OSU or at Children's Hospital. We were talking about that. What does that do? What does that chamber do does anybody know like exactly how it operates but I, I have no idea how that even works like honestly i thought co2 poisoning was a thing of getting them fresh air and extra oxygen and it just kind of flushed itself out you know i didn't know there was anything additional a specific thing because it seems like there's some potential there for co2 poisoning i did it wrong again co poisoning <laughs> to have a lot of people at once and if you have a very specific mm. treatment need like it, it would be hard to run them all through there based on how serious a situation like that would be did you were you able to find anything else it just anything said that, that a hyperbaric chamber uh, a hyperbaric oxygen therapy is a type of treatment used to speed up the healing of carbon monoxide poisoning gangrene stubborn wounds and infections which cause tissues that are starved for oxygen mm-hmm. um, I wonder if Carbon monoxide poisoning is really just preventing your body from getting the oxygen that it needs. I, I think so, and this is a way of pressurizing. It seems like, yeah, it must it must just kind of force, not, as opposed to just breathing in, it actually forces more of it to be absorbed in your lungs, I guess. The only thing I had ever heard about a hyper hyperbaric chamber was for sea divers that had, mm-hmm. c- had come up too quickly. The bends. Yeah, right, absolutely had Which the bends. sense because their oxygen levels are off also. Right, so. Um, so all that to say they, they were uh, Marysville and kind of local uh, hospital, local EMS transported a lot of patients to Memorial Hospital or to Grady and then were involved in transporting them to Columbus to Ohio State University Hospital or to um, Ch- Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus um, and then so Saturday, excuse me, Sunday, they started doing some investigation, and um, they believe that the cause of the leak uh, was the pool heater. Uh, carbon monoxide, you got to be careful, carbon monoxide is caused when uh, heating fuel is not completely combusted. Um, so, you know, when you... When you use fuel, it consumes that the fire consumes the fuel, but sometimes it doesn't consume at all, and that produces carbon monoxide. Uh, so they believe that it was that was the source, um, but obviously it 
was it contained to just the just the pool area? Right. And I think that's where that misinformation about it all of the injuries coming out of the pool area. And then there were also reports of some of the people that walked into Memorial Hospital saying they had a burning in their throat, mm-hmm. which isn't a typical uh, symptom of, of carbon monoxide poisoning. I don't believe nothing that I've read had that, um, which led a lot of people, I think, to theorize that it was something to do with chlorine. Right. Um, and I think that led to people thinking, oh, well, it's the pool because it's something in the water. It's the Well, I think there were some... It seemed like the 911 tapes that you listened to, there was, they were trying to see if there was something in the water, yeah. there was a water contamination, or if people were ingesting mm-hmm. something. And, yeah. uh, you know, it, it didn't sound to me like they thought necessarily it was carbon monoxide right off the bat, the dispatchers. Yeah, I, I listened to four different callers' audio from 911 calls, and it's, it's very sad to listen to a lot of the people struggling to figure out what's going on but you can almost hear dispatch piecing together what's going on as the different calls come in. There was the mother of a two-year-old child, and at one point the dispatch asks, well, did she ingest water? And the mother says, I think so, I don't know. And at that point they say, okay, so this has to do with her swallowing water when the daughter was passing out, struggling to stay awake and be responsive. And at the end of that call, the caller asks, should I go to the lobby or should I just wait in the pool area? And the dispatch says, just wait where you are, stay with your daughter, we'll find you there. But by the later callers, there was a female voice that was somehow involved. And at the end of the call, she's shouting at people in the pool, get out of the pool area, get out of the pool area. It sounds like it's something in the air. Mm. So it wasn't, you know, dispatch wasn't telling them. It sounds like carbon monoxide Mm. or it sounds like there's gas in the air, but it seems almost over the course of those few calls they gathered well, not everyone was in the pool. There are some people who are out of the pool and experiencing this, so it must be something airborne. And then, obviously, like Max said, once they had the CO detectors with the first responders, it became very clear that that was at least contributing to it, if not the only thing. Right, and I think the two, it was a two-year-old that first was not going in and out of consciousness. Mm-hmm. And I think when you get a call that there's a problem with a two-year-old at a pool, the first thing you think is some form of drowning, choking. You know, there's just certain things you expect emergencies from a pool. And then I know you were listening to was the 11 and the 11 year old brother of that. Uh, it was a little girl, two year old girl was calling 911. And while he's trying to relay information, he started becoming dizzy and had a headache and didn't yeah. feel good. And he said his throat hurt as well. Yeah. I think, I mean, honestly, props to this boy. Like, he stayed calm for a lot of it. He was obviously concerned, but he helped the dispatch to figure out how many people were unconscious, if they were still breathing, mm-hmm. what was going on. But, yeah, it was very sad. At the end, he was telling her, like, he felt like he was going in and out. He said, I feel daisy. So <laughs> he was obviously struggling as well. And I think the fact that he had been out of the pool maybe helped them piece that together as right. well. Right. Yeah, when you get several of them. I mean, <laughs> you don't have you tend to not have multiple drownings. Right. You know, right. it's it's whatever, but right. but if it was a chlorine issue, it yeah. isolated to the pool. Yeah. Uh you would kind of And you know, I assume maybe all firefighters carry those CO detectors. But it's a good thing they had those on. Right. You know, honestly, when they go running in there, they may have been 
I, I believe chlorine has a has an odor to it. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a stinging sensation. So if they go in there and they don't, mm-hmm. oh, there's no chlorine. I don't, I'm not getting any chlorine in the gas. Let's see what we've got here. Well, mm-hmm. now they're in it. All those people that are already, you know, mm-hmm. sucking it into their lungs, taking more. I mean, that may be very standard. I didn't know they had those right. kind of in every situation, but it's a, it's a very fortunate. Mm-hmm. It shows you why they prepare for every little thing like that. Right. And I think that kind of goes to why this was picked up by so many national outlets as well, because there are mass tragedies that occur frequently throughout our country, sadly, and children are involved a lot of the time. But the idea that this was something that they couldn't see, they couldn't smell, it hit them by complete surprise. You know, you're just hanging out at a hotel pool with your family. No crazy person, nobody, you know. Right. And I think that makes it really frightening and hit close to home for people that wow, it was so fortunate that this was found because there's no way they could detect this. I mean, adults can't detect this, much less children like suspect that this was what was happening. Well, there, we have a morbid draw to, to stuff like that, like you said, that you can't see cause as the Chipotle food poisoning <laughs> things that hit Powell and some other areas around the country. Like, There's this idea that hey, you just go about your day and you walk in to do something and you know you end up in the hospital you know, having no idea. And I think you're right. That's exactly what this was. It was, you know, there were wrestling teams in it that were in a youth wrestling tournament over in Bell Fountain, staying in the hotel. They're just kid wrestlers running around down, probably excited to go down to the pool yeah, and right. play for a while. Going to the pool you know, it's and like such a treat in the winter. Oh my gosh, we can swim. Right. That was, that's what my, my mother-in-law gets for my boys for Christmas is, a night at the hotel so that they can go so they can go swim like yeah. kid I think there is a this could have been me or this could have been my family feel to this story and I think that's why it resonated with people and this brings us to you know why did the firefighters have the detectors that went off and why did the hotel's detector go off now we've, we've talked that's another that's a whole developing angle you know as as we sit here right now and I suppose we could talk about like the whole the whole we were talking about national news a little bit, but you know, here at the Journal Tribune, like nobody else I, I think people are the dispatch might still be looking around for things on this story, but this morning on like channel four it was a little bit of a it was like fifteen seconds, you know, it's it's out of sight, out of mind now for a lot of people, but like we're still trying to chase down, you know, I don't want to call. I guess they are loose ends, though. You know, the state fire marshal's office is still investigating. I know Max looking into that, and Kayleen's been spending all morning kind of reading up on where were the carbon (laughs) monoxide detectors in this whole thing. You know, everybody knows about smoke detectors, and most people, I think, probably have carbon monoxide detectors in their home. And Chief Riley said, "Correct, no." He, he said there was one. yes. There he said there one. was one in the pool area. It but, just didn't right. go off. Mm-hmm. Which clearly the ones the firefighters had. It may as well have been a brick. Yeah, yeah. there was a, there was yeah. So, and I contacted the Hampton Inn representative, um, and at this time his name is Steve Aldridge. He's the vice president of sales and marketing at the Amber Lodge Group, um, and he said, you know, we're still investigating that matter. And we will be able to provide more information at the conclusion of our investigation. Yeah, I know Hampton Inn officials were given a little more information. They were a little more helpful with reporters. 
right when it happened and sharing their concern. And I think, I think they see what's coming too. Right. With this, uh, with this carbon monoxide monitor issue, uh, I think they're they've started to clam up a little bit, and they're not going to say anything that's going to be used against them later because I think there's an issue here. And Kayleen's been looking into exactly what hotels and other facilities have to have in terms of mandatory Mm -hmm. uh, detectors. Yeah, and I think something that I'm trying to work through right now is Ohio Fire Code was updated in 2019 to mandate where carbon monoxide detectors need to be. And it basically comes down to dwelling units, sleeping units, or classrooms. So it seems like the idea is a place where you might be sleeping and not be able to detect those symptoms of carbon monoxide poisoning. And there are exemptions based on how the room is heated, but it comes down to fuel burning appliances. Just like Max said, that's what creates carbon monoxide. So basically, if it's in a building that contains or is served by a fuel burning appliance, it needs a carbon monoxide detector in those three rooms. So it doesn't appear as though the detector would have been required in the pool area, but like we said, there was one there. It just but, didn't work. Yeah, there is a the the they did say that the fuel that the heating unit is heated by the pool heater is is fueled by, you know, natural gas, but it's not it's it's not a dwelling unit and not a sleeping unit or a classroom, so Right. And the interesting thing about the fire code is that it dictates where these need to be but when it comes to the maintenance section it's literally one sentence that says they must be maintained in accordance with the national fire protection association and basically once they start work stop working you should replace it but other detectors that are part of ohio building codes are inspected by outside agencies that's things like smoke detectors and radon not radon okay so um, yes. So the carbon monoxide detectors have to be in certain places, but I'm still working through, is this actually inspected by anyone? And it seems right now as though they're not, and it falls on the owner of the property to be doing that. So I've talked with the health department and they said, yeah, we don't inspect that. I don't believe that fire departments inspect that. They may provide carbon monoxide detectors to people but I'm not certain that they have a requirement to come in and check them every so often. So it seems more and more as though the people operating the hotel would be the people responsible for making sure that this is functional. I don't want to say that definitively, but based on the fact that this doesn't lay out inspection guidelines, hopefully I'll be able to get more guidance from the state. Yeah, we're trying to track down people that can tell us like specifically how are these detectors handled in a hotel or anywhere mm-hmm. like that. I mean, I know they walk through this building and check our check our fire extinguishers to make sure they're pressurized correctly. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. you know, in somewhere like a hotel, we're not checking. I guess they mandate that they have them. I haven't mm-hmm. been in the rooms out there. That hotel's not old. Like, no. it's not like it predates carbon monoxide detectors. Like, I'm sure they were installed with... Right. The construction, mm-hmm. you know, and, and thereby they should be hardwired in, I would think, to an electrical source. Yeah, officials from the health department said that they recommend battery-powered carbon monoxide detectors, I'm guessing, so that no wiring issue could 
cause that to be yeah. faulty. I've seen other guidelines that recommend it being wired into the building, but battery power. I see backup. that makes sense it, right. because and, as many rooms as are in a hotel, you don't want to rely on the uh, the rigorous inspection standards on the nine volt batteries right. to to make those work. So I would want them. You're right, hardwired in with a battery backup mm-hmm. would be far better. Yeah, and the health department too said generally the recommendation is check that they're working every time you change your clock. So spring and fall, which two times annually, I mean, that seems just about when you do your smoke detectors. But she said generally the lifespan of a carbon monoxide detector is about five years. Really? So That's good to know for my house. I know mine's <laughs> older than that. I didn't know that. Yeah, so I'm not... I'm sure it varies based on manufacturer or what type of setting it's in, but that was the general guidance. So, yeah, I, I mean... You can't speculate too much here because obviously we're waiting on a report from the state fire marshal and just further guidance as to how these inspections should be done because I guess theoretically it could have happened that they inspected this in the fall, checked it twice a year like they were supposed to, and since fall something has gone wrong. Well, you know, but I don't know in a commercial setting is there stauncher guidance because this was recommendation to keep your home safe. Right. You check it every two two times a year when you have your own family living there. But if you're in a place that hundreds of people stay each night, it seems almost as though there might be, you know, harsher are, guidance. Are carbon monoxide detectors, do they get out of date faster than smoke detectors? Because I know smoke detectors in my parents' houses will last <laughs> as long as they've got batteries in them pretty much. Is there something in the operation of those that – they essentially, like a light bulb, they will burn out and cease to operate. So when I talked with uh, Fire Chief Riley, he uh, talked to me a little bit about how a, a carbon monoxide detector worked. And he he used the analogy of a sponge. He said it's like there's a sponge in there, mm-hmm. and it absorbs carbon monoxide. He said in it will absorb a little bit and a little bit and a little bit over a long period of time the way that a sponge, you know, if you put a sponge on the corner and there's a little bit, he said, and so eventually it will fill up. And he said, but at that point it will go off and make you believe. It gives you essentially a false positive because it's so full it makes you seem like there's a lot. He said that's the, the two ways are that it fills up a little bit, a little bit, a little bit over a long period or one big incident and you know it the the sponge absorbs all of it at one time and goes off he said but generally when it fails what you get is a false positive mm-hmm. not a false negative so he said so he did not he did not understand why it, again it's, it's usually a situation where it's going off there is no carbon monoxide in the area, and you don't know why it's going off, so you have to get a new it's one. It's designed to be better safe than sorry. Absolutely, absolutely. But and so this, he was not, he did not, he did not understand why it I, failed this But way. I hate to say this, and I, here again, I'm not saying this is what happened, but if you're in your house and your smoke detector starts doing the chirping because your battery's going dead and you don't have a 9-volt, you don't leave that in there. Most people take it out to stop the chirping until they get a new battery. Mm-hmm. But the frightening thing is you can see smoke. So there's almost this but safety wh- net where you think, 
okay, well, I'd know if something was on fire. I can take this out for a couple days. But people associate the two types of detectors, whereas with carbon monoxide, you don't have that safety. So did but so. I what I'm saying is, did the slow buildup mm-hmm. go up until it went off sometime, and the only way they could figure out to shut this thing off so people could sleep is to disconnect it, and nobody ever got it repaired and yeah. updated. I, I don't know. I don't know that that's the case. I mean, that certainly seemed like a... I hate to say that, that, but that's certainly something that I would potentially do in my home because you're you are right. It, it's not something that you do long term, but at two in the morning when the smoke detector won't stop beeping, and you know there's no smoke, you just take the battery out. And I hate to, I hate to say it, people see carbon monoxide as a much lesser threat than a fire. Absolutely. No, I was and, shocked. And as that, we've seen, it's not. Right. It's honestly, it could. It has more potential to kill more people. The Journal of the American Medical Association said that uh, carbon monoxide is the leading cause of accidental poisoning deaths in the United States and that about 1,500 people a year die due to accidental Hmm. uh, carbon monoxide exposure. So, and then about 10,000 are go to the, go to the hospital to seek medical treatment for Like that, Mm -hmm. that number shocked me. Mm -hmm. So. And I think something that, um, the health department's public information officer was saying to me is, you know, sometimes we don't think of some of the fuel burning appliances in our houses. And she encouraged getting your water heater inspected Mm -hmm. annually by a technician. And I think the fact that this was started by a pool heater was interesting to me because you often think of accidental poisonings with carbon monoxide as their car was running. Right. Or they had a generator that they brought in. A human error. Someone someone (laughs) did something that the moron should have known better you should have known not to leave your garage door open while you're running your car out there you should have known not to bring you know a generator into your house well not to you know not to turn your oven on and to heat your home home. yeah those are the you know you i think you think a lot of those carbon monoxide accidents are preventable Mm -hmm. and boy oh boy and we might as well go go down that road we were talking about earlier there is a there is a real possibility. No offense to the people that got that got sick, and and it sounds like they're all going to be all right. This could have been the most fortunate outcome possible in this situation because you're lucky somebody was in the pool. If this happens at one o'clock in the morning when everybody else is asleep, there's nobody in the pool, and people sleep and don't wake up. Because carbon monoxide will not wake you up choking like smoke would. Right. A lot the places where that gas is concentrated, which clearly it was getting into rooms and would have gotten into more, mm-hmm. people would have just slept. If they were asleep and with no warning, with no detector, they would have slept through it and died. And I don't know I don't know, you know, if you're talking one, two, three in the morning out there, I don't know. How you would ever, how you would have ever known this was going on, unless someone was awake and they and they got dizzy, or you found bodies in the morning. I mean, if there was nobody in that pool, you know, if that baby, I would think a baby's more susceptible to it. If a baby's not in there and nodding in and out, mm-hmm. which is a very odd. And right. she was crying pretty loudly. Yeah. During the nine one one calls, so something like that. Is alarming to people when a baby is hurt. That's right, and, and acting and acting strange in and out, in and out, in and out is not the way a baby, a baby acts, and you know the crying, and so 
probably very susceptible to that. And then everyone else starts getting it. So they have a little bit of a warning from the baby and then everybody else is kind of going and they've already got the, uh, the paramedics and firefighters coming at that point to call it lucky sounds crass, but it's almost fortunate that there were people out there to get sick. Right. I think that's a reason why it spread so quickly onto national news. It's like a cautionary tale of, you know, I didn't even know that data until you shared it, Mac. Because like I said, you had texted us, Chad, um, on Saturday night when you were going up to the scene. And by Sunday morning, my mom calls me in Delaware State and said it's on national news. And that was only within 12 hours or so. It's a, it's a jarring thing. The, when anything happens at a hotel, but the pool aspect of it, the, the wholesomeness of families playing in a pool that kids were injured. I mean, there was a, there was a newsiness to it. I mean, there was no denying that, you know, I didn't necessarily think about that Friday night, like that this thing will go. I knew it was going to be a big, probably state story, at least regional, but boy, it took off. It was, it was gone overnight. Like it was. And, uh, I talked to Brad Gilbert, who's the director of the EMA and he said that his deputy director, her job on Saturday evening while this is all going on, uh, was to just monitor social media because um, there was so much happening on social media. And people people would grab a story or grab a kind of a, a snippet, whether it was ours, whether it was any number of the mm-hmm. other, you know, any number of folks yeah. had it. And they would share it and then somebody else would share it. Yeah. And people would comment on it, and and Brad said, you know, you let certain things go, but at some point you you know you try to deal with if something's starting to get out of hand, misinformation is starting to get out of hand, um, you know, you need to to try to deal with it. And she was kind of communicating back to uh, Tony Brooks, who was serving as the PIO, the the police chief, um, and it's a an issue of their coordination and how well they all work together. But um, Jay Riley said that. As he was going to the scene, his first call was to Marysville's police chief to see if he would act as a public information officer uh, so that the firemen could do kind of their what they needed to do and still have somebody communicating with the public. And, so. and you know that we've, on a handful of occasions, had to do stories about something that was absolutely false. It was a rumor, and we would have to do a, write a story about something that was not factual to d- just say, hey— this thing that's going around is not true, and people are picking up and grabbing it. And I can tell you, I was I was down in Dublin when I started getting calls, and someone just told me that there were a ton of you know squads and fire trucks at this hotel, and didn't know originally what it was. And and I told you I went through this. I thought I thought it was some kind of shooting mm-hmm. because I think that's what multiple squads kind of means a shooting or a that's the world we live in right now. And so I'm driving back, listening to a scanner app on my phone, and and I'm listening to it, and it sounded like for a minute like they were looking for someone else, like some suspect, like it was hard to piece together because I didn't hear the beginning. And then then someone someone finally sent me a text that said it was a it was a some type of gas leak. The other thing they said was there are bodies everywhere in the hotel, and I thought I'm driving back to a you know to I don't know how many people that hotel holds, but there's you know a hundred dead bodies in this hotel in Marysville. So that stuff starts to get around, and I can tell you they 
it had Square Drive closed for a while, but once it was reopened, there was a steady flow of people just driving by and then pulling into Texas Roadhouse to turn around mm-hmm. and creating pretty much a traffic jam in Texas right. Roadhouses as people were pulling in there to turn around. So you know exactly why they have to do that. Right. You know, I don't want to say that misinformation didn't used to spread, but it didn't spread as fast. Right. And it didn't take so much to ignite it, so little to ignite it, I should say. You know, all it takes is one person's speculation on something or... I know how hard we have to work to get actual information sometimes, but misinformation, you you can speculate very easy and you can... Throw bad information out very quickly. I stood right there talking to the police chief at the scene of that thing and, and was told that, you know, everything was contained to the, to pool, the pool area. Um, you know, so that was an official source and they were things were still being pieced together. So, you know, I, I remember when 9-11 happened. You and I have talked about this a lot. When 9-11 happened, in scenes of chaos, it's, it's amazing. Even people trained to disseminate information and take it in there were so many false stories on 9-11 that went around you know I, I always say there was there was one about a car bomb going off at the Capitol there, that a, another plane was heading for Cleveland like there were all kinds of fake false information coming out and they were coming out from official sources yeah I don't know that it was fake or false it just was mis- it was just wrong and it, it's a situation where they had a pl- I think the Cleveland plane thing they had a they had a plane missing and by the time that telephone gamed it down to other sources, it was, hey, there's a plane heading for Cleveland. And it had been around Cleveland somewhere. And if this had happened on a regular Tuesday, nothing. It's they would have tracked it down, and, and somebody would have gotten in trouble for kind of losing track of it, and it would have been no big deal. But, yeah, the fact that they had kind of a missing another missing plane, people thought Cleveland was about to get hit with something. I have no idea where the car bomb idea came from, but it's it's like – I think we're pretty decent at staying halfway calm when you're trying to gather news in situations like that. And, you know, you get out of a situation like that and when there's a lot of pieces in the air and a lot of bodies flying around doing different things, you know, there's there's potential to uh, not see things line up maybe the way. I was, to be quite honest, and I said this, I was I was more convinced that it was a chlorine incident than CO2 because of some of the information that was coming out and and different things like that. So it's it's not that hard to to see how those things line up and kind of bad stories, bad information gets out there and then other people grab a hold of it. And then you're talking about social media is just filled with people that maybe don't take in information quite as much. They just kind of spit back out the first thing they hear and right. you understand exactly how these... I think there's some folks that do it intentionally just to... Oh, you don't you want know, to think that, but you're right. People, you're right, but yeah. you don't want to think that, but you're right. Now, just to, to be clear, uh, the fire department did test for chlorine issues because it because it it does so seem like the the obvious and easy choice. Hey, was this thing happening also? And they said no. It was there was no chlorine issues. The I wonder if the was- I wonder if the burning lungs thing, kind of that thing that I can't wrap my head around. I wonder if that's a chlorine. Like you don't usually have. Like Car- yes, you don't usually have carbon monoxide issues in pools. I wonder if just the fact of chlorine in the air or whether you take in a little bit in your mouth or something, just the combination of those two didn't have something to do with that. the difficulty breathing. Children described it as my throat is burning. Really? Been part of it yeah. too because I know that's what the 
11-year-old on the 911 call said. He said he had a headache and it was hard for him to breathe, but he kept saying his throat hurt a lot. And I wonder if maybe that was just yeah. the way a child... You also you also sometimes bound, bind up tension in your throat. Like if you're like half crying, people are screaming or whatever, and you're mm-hmm. just, mm-hmm. you know... And I don't know that this to be true or not, but sometimes you have a you know, a physiological reaction. If you are, if you're trying to breathe, you open your throat wider and you start to gasp in, you may be taking in more of that chlorine air just because you're trying to breathe, trying so desperately to get oxygen into your system. That's why people don't train for, you know, you don't go out and run on a treadmill in a pool. Maybe just taking, you know, breathing Mm -hmm. fast and taking that in through your, yeah, your That's windpipe so much as you're gasping. Some of them do, but they're idiots, yeah. <laughs> you're gasping like that. You might be right. Just taking in those fumes, and it and it does has that reaction to the throats. But and you said, Mac, that Chief Riley said there's going to be a regional debriefing this Friday. Um, what do they plan to discuss? Do you know? So they want to talk about um, what what went right, what kind of what went wrong, where they could where they could have done better. And, and Chief Riley said that. Looking back on it, any situation, um, you always see things that you wish you had done better or th- that you wish you had done differently. He said, now, fortunately for us, most of those things are small. He said, but we do want to go back and we want to look at what we did well, what we didn't do well, and what can we learn, how can we do better next time, and share that information with kind of some other counties because this is such a... You know, Union County got a, you know, a, an actual test of what to do in this situation. And, you know, you don't you don't usually get those tests to, to see what to do. So they're going to try to share that information, what they learned with kind of some regional partners and, and kind of, I guess, statewide partners. Um, now, Brad Gilbert did talk about also the idea that they do a lot of trainings kind of together they create scenarios and they, they do tabletops and they do kind of some in-field trainings um, things like hey what would happen if a train were to hit a school bus and what were what would happen if there was obviously mass shooting at a at a school or at a, a, a county building a lot of hazmat a lot yeah. of hazmat situations a lot of hazmats but he said we didn't prepare for kind of this specific incident. He said, but all of the trainings that we have help us to work together. And we all know what everybody's strengths are, what their capabilities are. We know kind of what each group is going to do in certain situations. And he said, so that allowed everybody to work better together. And just the idea of mass transportation of mm-hmm. victims, I think, having having worked that out, you know, even in theory, you know, even on a tabletop exercise. Right. You know, if you take any of us and say, "All right, there's 20 people out there on the ground. You got to deal with them." We're going to scramble around and load them in the back of a pickup truck and take them all to the same place. Right. But these guys, having worked through these things, you know, this is this is probably one of the bigger mass incidents with a lot of people affected. I can't remember anything like yeah. this, but I think they've pretty seamlessly got them. And, you know, not to mention COVID has hospitals running at high volumes, so each hospital can handle less. Right. And they still kind of got people, you know, they sent them to Memorial to get them kind of stabilized and then shipped them out to where they could get 
you know, longer term uh, care, but I there think, was a flow to it. You know, it wasn't it wasn't chaos. I mean, well, I, it's not the same. The thing. situation was chaotic. Yes, but the flow of patients to hospitals once dealt with wasn't wasn't chaos. The lessons learned. You know, there's not a whole lot of difference if there are children that are you know in the tabletop exercise that are injured because of a, a fake you know, right. a, a train crash. Um, once you get past the very specific how this happened, the idea of getting them transported and, and how do I identify hospitals to take them to? How do we identify what to do next? A lot of that is the same. And so they, those lessons learned mm-hmm. during those tabletop exercises and those field exercises uh, translated very well and, and, and created I think, what, what was, I think, the best possible outcome for these. And I think some people... I'm going to make a broad assumption here, but I think sometimes some people look at like a ton of planning and tabletop exercises like that as just, just playing around. I think, oh, you, you know, oh, you're just pie in the sky planning and, and you're almost like role playing it. Mm-hmm. Like there's, you're looking at this worst case scenario and, and you do it a few times a year and it's just, you know, I don't want to say a worthless training, but I think not everybody realizes the pieces that came together for a situation like this that come from those things that they don't just they don't just sit there and they're just, you know, thinking about things that could never happen because even if it, you know, like you said, even if this wasn't a train crashing into a school bus, the patient flow or the you know, from the public infor- using just, you know, signing a public information officer or things like that come into play and you know the more you do it i suppose it becomes second nature even though you can't have this nobody's has a lot of experience with something like this so the tabletop exercise is the the only way you can have any level of confidence in kind of your systems that are in place i know that you and i had talked last week um union county's ema is uh, working on a national accreditation, and uh, this is a a pretty significant accreditation. And I, I believe there's about 80 counties in the country that have this accreditation. And Union County has been working on it for a while and is continuing there's to work on it. Two in Ohio right now, is that right? Yeah, I believe there's two in Ohio that, are... that, that have this accreditation. I think it's Montgomery and uh, Cuyahoga, which are massive counties compared to us. Right. Right. And with significantly different populations and and needs and, and resources. Um, and you know, when we heard this, it's a, it's an impressive thing, but we kind of wondered, Hey, you know, is that a little bit of overkill? Do we really need that? What's ever going to happen in, in, when are we ever going to need something like this in, in Marysville? It's so easy to wrap your head around why firefighters need to train or police need to train, but EMA is a lot more difficult to, to wrap your head around. Why do we need to train for this? I have, back when I used to, you know, go around to fires and different things like that, when you go to one that's near a county line and you get mutual aid from other fire departments assisting that are coming from other counties, and then Brad pulls up in his EMA bus that lets people get out of the cold or go in to get into some quiet to talk things over about what they want to do or just showing up with water. The fire trucks pump out a lot of water, but they're not carrying bottled water. Right. So if it's in the middle of the summer, here comes Brad 
with water, you know, these things like that for the firefighters. And what I was getting at, firefighters from other counties and, and law enforcement also say, man, I wish we had an EMA like that or a relationship with our EMA like that, that, hey, this guy clearly wants to show up mm-hmm. to these events. He and wants also, to come and support them, and, and mm-hmm. it pays, man. It, it pays dividends to have somebody that mm-hmm. cares about that role. Right, and I mean, through COVID, when they had all of our local first responders, our health department, school officials, everyone trying to coordinate the response together, the EMA was helping to put that together as well. So it just shows, you know, you said some of these exercises may seem not useless, but like they won't ever be put into practice. Well, three years ago, we didn't think a global pandemic would be affecting our day-to-day lives. Mm -hmm. No one could have ever imagined that a gas leak at a hotel pool would make children sick. But these are the people who have the foresight to know, Mm -hmm. like, yes, this does happen. And he, I know he, a lot of times he has, he has portable lighting, Mm -hmm. Brad does, that is fantastic for a variety of situations where you don't think, you're like, man, I, we can't see anything, and all of a sudden Brad shows up with these generators and portable lights, and now it's daytime with whatever they're working on. And he, He's one of those guys, when I talk about Union County, and there's a there's a, a lot of folks in Union County that um, are very passionate about their job and love their job and are, are, are good at their job because they're, they're technically good at their job, but they're also great at their job because they love doing their job. And Brad is one of those guys that you, you look at, and it does not take you long watching Brad. He's built for it. Yep. He's built for it. His dad did it. Mm-hmm. Like, it's in him. It's in that family. And they love it, and he's always looking for a way to make it better and a little bit better for it. And it, making it better for him doesn't do anything. He makes it better so that it's better for the firefighters and the police officers and anyone he's serving. Like, the him getting more generators and lights or additional bottled water or whatever doesn't benefit him. That's even more work for him. It but benefits the people we should. I mean, he yep. could he could run that thing on a shoestring and 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 not do anything because yeah, you know what? I'm not hot. I'm in, you know I'm sitting over here, but he does that stuff in a support role that a lot of times I don't think. I'm sure the fire and law enforcement appreciate it, but I don't think the rest of the community realizes. You know that role. They only see, they only see the badges and the helmets. They right. don't see the guy behind there that's keeping them hydrated. <laughs> I mean, it sounds weird, but it's it's true. I've seen it a million times at these things. I've known when that plane crashed out on out uh, out in Jerome a couple of years ago. I couldn't find it, and all of a sudden Brad rolls by an EMA bus, so I followed him. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I knew he knew where it was. Right. So so I just got tucked in behind him and followed him and finally got to the right place. And a storm chaser just followed. He'll lead, he'll lead you to the emergency. You. He'll find you. Yeah. All right. Well, that's the show for this week. Thank you guys for all the good information. And as we said, this this incident, this situation is ongoing. This investigation is ongoing, and, and our looking into it um, will continue. So do keep an eye out on the newspaper uh, or even perhaps the podcast for some updates on, on what's going on uh, as the information comes in and becomes more clear. So thank you all for that. Of course, thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, do tune into the show, and we'll see you next week.